0: Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, that you are good. We agree with the psalmist when he says, your name is good and good altogether. Uh, We pray that as we look at this text, you will teach us that we are not good. And uh, Lord, that uh, we actually need to be good if we are to have life and if we are to have eternal life with you. And so we pray that you would not leave us in despair, but rather help us to look to your son. Uh, who is not only good, but uh, who came and died, that we might be good. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would uh, encourage our hearts with these truths this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. In our Bible reading, we read from Mark's Gospel. and I think you'd agree with me. It was incredible, wasn't it? it was a, it's a wonderful reading. Here's this bloke. He comes to Jesus, and he asks this incredible question. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, we're told the guy had a lot of possessions. We're told he also kept the law. Uh, if you go to Luke's Gospel for the same account, Luke tells us he was a ruler. If you go to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us he's young. Uh, and so we have this young ruler who's rich and he asks this most relevant, most pertinent question. Uh, Tim Keller, not to be outdone, says, I bet this guy was good looking as well. <laughs> and Tim Keller gets it right, sort of. He, he sort of gets the spirit of the text because what, what I think you're supposed to get into your mind is the guy had it all. Um, he, he, he had everything by human standards and the way we measure each other. And how would you treat someone, for instance, if they came through that door and you could tell and you knew something about the person and it seemed and appeared to you that the guy had it all and he comes to you and he says, "Uh, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Surely our our temptation is just to accept them straight away. Surely uh, the temptation is to say, can I give you our bulletin? This is when our meetings are on. Uh, this is when we uh, do this and this is when we do that. And by the way, there's a little plate at the corner. If you ever like to give an offering, please give an offering as well. Um, what should we do? Well, Well, Jesus doesn't deal with him in this way. Jesus actually points him to God and shows him God and teaches him something about God. And I trust we're going to learn something about God this morning as we look at how Jesus interacted with this man. The first thing we learn that Jesus taught this man, he reminded him that only God is good. Uh, It's an amazing encounter. This guy's a high achiever or a high flyer, and he actually comes to Jesus. Uh, And it's obvious the man had morals, Uh, He he was not wealthy because he was head of a bikey gang or something like that. Uh, He he was wealthy even though he knew what was right and wrong. He had ethics in his business. He had ethics in the way he behaved. We would call him moral. We would probably call him devout or even religious. Uh, And and he even in his own mind believed and perceived that he kept the law perfectly from his youth. Notice the words. He says of himself to Jesus, He says, Teacher, all these things, meaning all the commands, I have kept from my youth. Uh, We'd have to say he's a good bloke, wouldn't we? Uh, Wouldn't you normally see a bloke like this and say, He's pretty good? Except after you read this text, you're going to be a bit more cautious, aren't you? You're going to be a bit careful about how you use that word good. Uh, This guy shows Jesus respect, he shows him honour. He actually calls Jesus good. And Jesus could so easily be tempted to just welcome this guy and say, just come along and join us. You've obviously hit the nail on the head. But instead, Jesus questions his use of the word good, doesn't he? And Jesus tells him, don't use that word good too easily. Reserve it only for God. Now, what does good mean? What did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, Jesus didn't have the Oxford Dictionary, but we have it, and I'll have a go from the Oxford Dictionary firstly. Uh, They'll tell you the word can mean pleasing or pleasant. It can mean healthy or well in its being. It can mean of high quality or standard. But theologians, uh, one theologian, a Baptist, Dag. He says, someone is good if they have a disposition or a desire to produce happiness. Produce happiness in others mainly. Uh, to, to be good and to give people enjoyment, if you like. So, so God's goodness, he says, is often expressed in God's love. Now these are abstract terms. And as the kids couldn't explain good to me this morning, and as it would have been hard for me to actually explain every single part of good to them this morning we need illustrations don't we if you give me an illustration it will help me understand better and so most of the theologians will say go to creation if you have a look at creation you'll, you'll get some understanding of how good God is God made everything good in the beginning in fact it had no defect at all it was pleasant. It was pleasing. It was well in its being. It was healthy. It was of high quality, a high standard. It was perfect. And it actually produced happiness. In Genesis 1.31, God says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Creation is good because God is good, isn't it? It's a reflection of who God is. God was pleased with creation when he saw it. He he could look at it and say, Here's a completed work. And man, who was also created as a completed being, was given as, if you like, a gift, this creation. He didn't have to do anything for it. It was just a gracious gift that he would be put in the centre of such a beautiful, beautiful creation. God was pleased with the creation, and Adam and Eve were pleased and enjoyed the creation. In fact, God gave them senses when he created Adam and Eve to actually enjoy him and enjoy the creation as well. God's good, isn't he? he, he he's good because he actually gave them this enjoyment. He has this disposition or desire to produce happiness. In creation, we see this tremendous goodness and tremendous love. You, you know, the catechism, it asks a question, The first question, what is the chief end of man? Uh, Or why was I made in the kids' catechism? And the answer is to glorify God. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, We're created by God and we're created for God. We fulfill our purpose, really, when we obey God, don't we? Uh, When we do exactly what God says, that's when we fulfill our purpose. But, But we're not machines and robots that just clock in and clock out and do exactly what we're told, we actually have joy when we do what God tells us to do. We actually have enjoyment when we fulfill our purpose. The psalmist, uh, he's in relationship with God. He actually envies the world at one point where he's about to struggle. And then he suddenly realizes God is all he needs. And he he ends off with these verses in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. I mean, God's his friend. My daughter would say, God is his BFF. It's incredible friendship, isn't it? But then he says, my flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Well, he's even more than that. He says, God is someone I can't do without. He's my only friend. He's the only one I can trust. I can't even trust my own flesh and my own heart. They will fail. We're not just created as robots that follow a pattern, are we? We're actually created to enjoy and long for and Love our God, and He created us, God created us with this capacity to actually enjoy Him and to enjoy his creation we 're surrounded around us by, by sources of pleasure and enjoyment. Our human organs, every part of our body, has have different senses and different senses enjoy. Different things in this world, and it's not by accident. It's because that's exactly how we have been made. God gave us these pleasures to enjoy, and it's proof, really, that God is good. So, for instance, you can stimulate a sense and stimulate a human organ, and you will find when it's stimulated, it produces pleasure. Because that's how God has created your body. He did not create any part of our anatomy. There's not a single part of our body that produces pain. No part is designed to make us miserable and to make us painful. God is good. In this sense, he has a disposition to produce happiness in us. We have a quarterly newsletter that we write as a church to our suburb. And this year, uh, this actually this quarter, uh, Ben... Uh, uh, wrote our newsletter, and these are the words he wrote. And I'm going to quote Ben here. He says, Mother's milk comforts a crying baby because special substances are released. The baby experiences satisfaction and pleasure. Now mothers over here are saying, well, we knew that. And it's obvious, isn't it? But, but for the blokes, here's something for you. The aroma of sizzling steak Triggers the release of brain chemicals, alerting us that pleasure is near. Whether it's milk or whether it's meat, food brings satisfaction and pleasure, doesn't it? And you know that. Andy McIntosh, he's speaking of the year. He says this of the year. He says, consider the year... Sound waves get mechanically amplified into liquid waves that are converted into chemical energy and finally into electrical signals that have been split into different notes, individual frequencies and harmonics. The complex engineering allows us to appreciate beauty in music. You see what is he saying about your body? It's functional, isn't it? You can come and have a bloke up the front here making all these noises... But your ear can take those noises and translate them into sounds and words and you can understand it and have your mind stimulated. And that's not anywhere near as wonderful as if two people come and play just two instruments. And you sing a song and you go home loving that truth because that's your favorite hymn, isn't it? You appreciate the beauty of it. Only God can create a universe with humans like us on it, that, that are functionally so practical. We, we have years that can take sounds and translate those sounds and, and actually process them into good and bad sounds. But yet, not only are we functionally practical, we have this capacity to enjoy beauty. We have this capacity to actually be happy and enjoy the creation God has given us. Verse 18, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. Stephen Sharnock, uh, he, he writes about God, and speaking of God's goodness, he says this, he says, God is originally good. He is good in and of himself. He does not depend on us for goodness, but rather he is good to us. And we depend on him. We depend on him for good. Only God is infinitely good. Only God is the measuring stick for what is good. I think this is the lesson the man had to learn. I think the bloke, even though he called Jesus good, I think inside himself he thought he was not a bad bloke. He was pretty good himself. And Jesus had to teach him he was not good. That only God alone is good. And so Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments and points him to the Ten Commandments to understand something about how good God is and how we can never be good. And he doesn't use all the Ten Commandments, but he's obviously referring to the whole lot. And he did not quote them in order in any way, he did not quote every single one, he left out a few. But look at verse 19. He says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now we know those first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. They teach us to love God, don't they? To worship God. They teach us to glorify God. And then the next six commandments teach us to treat our fellow man, how we should treat one another. And we honor and glorify God when we love and care for one another. God's goodness is so clearly shown in those Ten Commandments. They, they just teach us just how righteous and pure and just how full of love he is. If we could only obey those Ten Commandments, we would have incredible joy and pleasure. If we could, enjoy, if we could obey those commandments, we would have peace in our communities. We would actually have satisfaction the psalmist could say this of the law he says it's better than gold it's better than wealth it's sweeter also than honey isn't it Uh, the ten commandments are good because they reflect God and God is good they they tell us something about God and how he treats himself and how he treats us Uh, God gives life he does not murder God is faithful he's honest he does not tell lies He's not selfish. He gives. So he does not steal. He, he, he As God the Son, the Son obeys the Father. The Son respects the Father. In the Trinity, there's respect, there's honor, there's love, there's worship. No one is good but one, and that is God. That's the first lesson we learn that Jesus is teaching this man. The second thing I think Jesus is teaching this man is that Jesus is good. Uh, and we see a small glimpse of Jesus' uh, godlike goodness in verse 21. You know, Jesus tells the man to leave all his possessions and follow him. And the man says, no, I, I actually like my possessions better. Uh, so I'll take a pass on that. A- and Jesus would have known this is coming. And Jesus would have known this man would reject him and, in fact, despise his offer. And yet we're told in verse 21 that Jesus loved him Uh, it's amazing isn't it to love someone in the face of rejection Uh, in the face of ingratitude and rebellion to actually show love for someone it's not human like is it it's not something we gravitate to we don't love people who don't love us we don't like people who don't like us if people don't say we're good people we don't think they're good people Uh, But here, this man is so rebellious, and yet he's given this offer of eternal life by Jesus. He's given this offer to take up his cross and follow him. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, Jesus has a wide heart. He has abundance of pity. He has compassion and tender concern, even for those following sin and the world. He likens it to the way we would go on a holiday, and you'd come to a castle, possibly in England, and you'd see this broken-down castle. The windows are possibly broken, the roof has got holes in it, and it's not the most well-kept building. But as you look at it, you see it's not as it is today. You see it in its former beauty, and its grand design that was really the starting point of that castle. And he says you see the marks of the great design, and you love it. And Jesus' love is that general love, isn't it, that God has? Because God loves the just and the unjust. He, he, when we have rain, the, the righteous get the rainfall on them, and the unrighteous get the rainfall on them. And in that way, it's the same as God's love. But, but God's general love is different to God's saving love, isn't it? God, God's saving love is quite different. Here, it's very special. God loves horrible sinners he, he specially chooses them and he sets them apart despite their sin and he makes them right with him he makes them right with his holy nature and he keeps them all their life right to the end and he eventually brings them to glory now, now we would find that so hard to do we would find it so hard we're not good like that but, but here we see a picture of God's goodness, that he can actually love someone who is unlovely. He can love someone who rejects him and hates him. We cannot do this. And God in Jesus demonstrates this to this rich young ruler, doesn't he? But others have come to this text, and they've said that Jesus was actually being difficult. And they say something like this. They say Jesus was being a nitpicker. He was a respectful man. He was a man who came and asked about eternal life. It's a fair question. He was keen to be saved. Why didn't Jesus just accept him and say, come along? Why didn't Jesus uh, treat him with respect in response and say, just join the group? Instead, Jesus provoked him with these questions. Well, I think if you picture and understand these questions well, Jesus is trying to help this man understand God, isn't he? He's just trying to bring him to a point where he sees God as who God is. Jesus is trying to get this man to get the grip on the fact that he doesn't decide what's good. It's God who decides what's good. He's not the measuring stick. God is the measuring stick. And we don't define good by comparing ourselves by one another. I can't call you good because I think you're better than me or you call me good because you think I'm better than you. Good is not defined by us. It's defined totally objectively by God. It's 100% perfection. And only God has this 100% perfection. Only God has this totally pure and totally loving nature. And I believe Jesus was helping him come to this conclusion. And I think Jesus was also trying to explain to him that he is God. I don't think this man grasped that either. He thought Jesus was just a man. He was coming to a human teacher. In 318, in the year 318, a guy called Arius, he taught that Jesus is not God. He said that Jesus is the first of all created beings, didn't he? And his followers quoted these words of Jesus they took the words, no one is good but one, that is God. And they said, aha, hang on a minute, if Jesus is saying no one is good but one, that's God, well then Jesus can't be good and Jesus can't be God. And when they said that, the churches were alarmed because up until this Ares came along, generally people believed that Jesus was God and God was God the Father. And there were certainly two... Uh, distinct persons but there was one being and, and one Godhead and so the councils got together and they decided to meet and discuss and discuss and, and try and study the whole thing Arius came in and you could picture Arius he's this tall man, he's this elderly man he looked stately and then his opponent was this a fellow called Athanasius and Athanasius was this short young boy looking fellow And the two of them came into the council, and who do you think you would want to listen to? The elderly, tall man who speaks in a stately voice, or this young little whippersnipper who comes and says, you're wrong. And Athanasius came, and he taught that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, but there's one being, and they're all God. And the church leaders took many attempts at this, Athanasius got chucked out of his church and out of his home five times. And it was only after he died, in 381 AD, the church leaders ruled that Jesus Christ was God who came in the flesh. Uh, They came to Mark 10. And some of the church leaders, when they came to Mark 10, they said, They said, that Jesus is actually throwing out questions and he's throwing out suggestions and what he's trying to do is draw the rich young ruler around to a conclusion and he's trying to get this rich young ruler to realize that he is God they said the man was approaching Jesus as a human teacher and as a human teacher alone and Jesus was saying he's not just a human teacher he's more than that And so they said, if you really want to understand the spirit of what Jesus was saying, he was saying to this bloke, if you're going to approach me as a mere man, then you should not give me the title good, because the title good belongs to God only. Or if you put it another way, he says, if you want to own me as God, if you want to give me the title that only belongs to me as God, then... You should. Sorry, if you want to give me the title that belongs to God then you should own me as God and so you can't treat me as a teacher only if you're going to give me the title as good and this was the spirit of what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler and when he pointed him to the Ten Commandments to illustrate God's perfection here Jesus was saying that he is good and his, his life was going to show he kept the Ten Commandments perfectly And perhaps when he showed him the Ten Commandments, rather than just waiting for Jesus to prove that he was good, this man would firstly be humbled and he'd realize he was sinful. And the hope, really, is that this man would read the Ten Commandments clearly and understand, like Isaiah, that when he comes into the presence of good, when he comes into the presence of God, that really he's a man full of sin. You remember Isaiah, he comes to just a vision of God and he cries like a baby. In Isaiah chapter 6 he says, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, once we understand God, we'll understand our own sin. Once we understand God, we'll understand that eternal life is not something we just do. It's not something we earn. It's not something that comes from something of our activity. It comes from God. It's a gift. We are not good. We cannot live in God's presence. Unless God makes us good, we cannot come to him. We have no hope. We have no hope of eternal life in our state. To get God, we need God. And the man had to see that he needed this 100% perfection. He was not going to have eternal life without it. And this is exactly what he had to come to grips with, that his sin needed to be totally erased, 100% goodness needed to be put in its place. And unless something radical like this was done, he had no hope and only God alone could do this for him. If a man were to do 100% for in his life, if an ordinary man was 100% perfect, he would only achieve his own ob- obligation to God anyway. The only person he could save is himself. But, but he needed God to do something, and God did by sending his son. And God miraculously interjected. And he, the word becomes flesh, he takes our sin, and he provides for us 100% righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He says in Matthew five seventeen, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. Or well, the Hebrew writer speaking of Jesus says that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this man had to realise Jesus is good. He's God in the flesh. And Romans tells us that Jesus is so good that he was willing to die for sinners. Romans says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one man die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, we're to learn this lesson, aren't we? That Jesus is good. He is God. He died for us, that we might, our sin might be taken for us, and he kept the commandments for us, uh, that, that we might be right before God. Only Jesus is good. Now the last thing we learn, that our greatest good is actually found in following Jesus himself. Uh, I think it's hard to work out why this guy came to Jesus. He was rich. He did the right things. He owned stuff. He probably never worried about food or clothing. His biggest issue was probably brand names, wasn't it? Uh, he probably ate at the best places, at the best restaurants, and he knew what was good food and bad food. He was powerful. He was respected. But, but he didn't come for respect. He came to give Jesus respect. And you have to give him some credit. Uh, he came in the right manner. He knelt before Jesus. He probably kissed Jesus' feet. Uh, and he brings a sincere question. It's not a question like the Pharisees brought, to trap Jesus. Nor was it a question like the Samaritan lady to avoid the issue. He seemed genuine. But there was still something missing, wasn't there? Because notice his question. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He seemed to have everything. He seemed to have everything on the outside, but there was still something missing. He needed something, otherwise he would never have humbled himself to come to Jesus to ask for something and he asked for the right thing he he comes to the right place he asked for eternal life he he was perfectly religious in his mind he owned everything he needed to own he lacked nothing practically but yet he knew he lacked eternal life he lacked eternal security he, he lacked hope for the future and somehow he he thought, if he just went to jesus he 'd get it and all Jesus does is really show him his problem doesn 't he that that he can 't do it, and owning stuff will not do it. I get a buzz when I buy a new thing i I, I suspect each one of you do get the same as well I just have a like a simple pen I bought it 's about five dollars. And I just loved it. It just had... You wouldn't think someone could get a buzz out of a $5 pen. But but I did. It has this soft section. It writes so well. I bought 20 of them after that. <laughs> because I have a suspicion about marketing departments. If something goes well, they'll change the design. And so I bought them. And then I thought, hang on a minute. If I run out of the 20, I'll need refills. So I went out and bought refills as well. And it's the most ridiculous purchase I could ever think of. But... but at the same time, it made me realise I-, I like owning stuff. And I think this bloke was probably like that. He would want to know what the latest cart he could buy to hitch onto his camel or his horses. He'd probably want to know what accessories come with it or what m- horsepower he could attach to it. We, we get a buzz out of possessions. We get a buzz out of learning things. And I think this guy got a buzz out of learning things. Uh, I like learning new stuff. Uh, I, I like less new stuff on computers these days. But, but if it's not on a computer, I love learning new stuff. And I think is coming to Jesus as a teacher, wanting to learn new stuff. Uh, and he thought it would be a buzz of an experience to just learn something new this morning. Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes tells us we actually get pleasure from gaining wealth we get pleasure from learning stuff we get pleasure from lots of jokes we get pleasure from sex as well we just learn physical pleasures are things we enjoy because god created us that way our human anatomies when stimulated give us pleasure god didn't create us to be miserable and he didn't give us any organ that produces pain but god's not self-indulgent and he's he's not weak he doesn't just create everything for everything to enjoy creation and to enjoy things with license. He's not like a Santa Claus or something like that. He's greater than that. He made us for himself. He made us in righteousness and in beauty and in love. And we find greatest life, joy, and satisfaction in Him, in God Himself. And God's goodness aims much higher than our everyday petty uh, sensual pleasures. And once again Ben in his little quarterly newsletter he says these words. He says stimulating our bodies is not enough to satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. A need for a committed loving relationship, security, joy and hope cannot be found in milk or meat, marijuana or motorbikes, King King Island cream or computer games, persimmons, I think the rich young ruler sensed this, don't you think? Law keeping or worldly success, self-righteousness or worldly success was just not enough. It didn't cut it. And he knew eternal life was missing and Jesus had confirmed and in fact exposed his problem even more. And the man had to work out that really he had an inflated opinion of himself. He actually thought he was a good bloke. And he needed just this small adjustment or this one little thing he had to do to add on to all the other things he had to do to have eternal life. He was totally ignorant of God's holy character. He was totally ignorant of his sinfulness and his awful sinfulness. He did not understand the magnitude of the problem. We don't need a band-aid. We don't need just a little add-on in our lives. Uh, We need a radical change. Uh, eternal life only exists in God and with God. It comes from God. And to get into the presence of God is impossible for us in the state we're in. If if we were to do that, to presumptuously somehow get into the presence of God in the state we're in, we would die. Moses, he he begs God, doesn't he, in Exodus, can I see you? Can I see your glory? And God says to him, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Moses had to hide behind a rock, and then in mercy God covers him. And God then allows his goodness and his glory to pass by. But Moses cannot see God's face. And Jesus knew this man could never have eternal life without a radical change, without God's intervention. He had to turn from loving wealth and his self-righteousness and uh, all his pleasures. It was drastic action. It needed repentance and faith. And only Jesus could do this for him. Only God could do this for him so that he could have eternal life. And verse 21, Jesus tells him that, that he needs to sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, And you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. Well, the man had to make a choice, didn't he? It was Jesus and eternal life or wealth and possessions. It had to be Jesus or the things of this earth. And it's a sad story because we're told the man made the wrong decision. Verse 22, we're told, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful For he had great possessions. I I trust none of us here this morning will be sad at this word. Uh, Our prayer really should be that we'll be drawn to a good God, isn't it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray uh, that you would uh, help us to see just how good you are. Uh, Help us also, Lord, this morning to see just how sinful we are. And Lord, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that he came to die and take our punishment. We thank you that he came to provide us with that righteousness that is needed, that we might be made right with you. And we do pray that we would uh, be get granted that great gift of faith and that great gift of life. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.